Democracy, a word derived from the Greek roots demos, meaning people, and kratia, meaning power. Together, people power. Democracy is viewed as an ideology, a governmental system, or in the words of late civil rights activist John Lewis, not as a state, but as an act for each generation to do its part. In a democracy, the people live under the laws of their choosing. By consenting to follow those laws or acting to change them, the people's rights and freedoms are protected. To many, democracy is the sacred foundation of America. To engage in civic duty, participate in elections, and consent to policy is what it means to be an American. For these people, the words United States and democracy are nearly synonyms. To others, American democracy is not, has never been, and likely never will be. For them, the phrase United States democracy is a contradiction. I'm Noura Ahmed. And I'm Eliza Craig, and this is Democracy, a podcast from Themester. In his second episode, Dr. Rasul Moat, professor of American Studies and Geography, discusses the history and development of police and policing. You have just explained the historic role and contemporary role of racial violence in American democracy and questioned whether or not racial violence is a foundational aspect of democracy or whether or not there is a democracy that exists. Can we talk a little bit about the role of police historically in American democracy? It's hard to remove police in the United States from other places, specifically Britain, because the United States prior to being the United States was a colony and adopted some of the structures from colonial experience. So the early policing, not police official, but policing type of duties you can think about in three ways constables protecting property the second is slave patrols so enslaved peoples who might be running away or walking between plantations we have no conception of what slave life looked like everybody wasn't staying on the plantations sometimes people were sent on errands some people were loaned out to other plantations so you know somebody who was enslaved might be crazy enough to like think about running away in between going from one job to another. There were so many slave insurrections, so many people running away. They had to create a occupation to watch this. And then the third thing is settler colonial militias. As countries were taking over territories and then setting up a base and operation, they needed militias of volunteers or oftentimes drafted people from other places imported in to quell the, the native or indigenous group. These three examples of policing Two of them are clearly about the protection of property. And then the third is about almost the acclimation of property. Um, yeah, right. Interesting. So when we get into an actual standing professionalized police force, this is phenomenally covered by three scholars of note. Khalil Muhammad, once a professor at Indiana University, now at Harvard, condemnation of blackness, Alex Vitale in, in the policing, and then Indiana University's own McCole Siegel covers this extensively in violence work. And it's McCole Siegel's work that I'll allude to when we get into more aspects of policing. Now, when we're thinking about actual standing police force, the origins of that is based upon the sheer amount of labor strikes, which is one, enslaved people's insurrections, and then colonial occupational forces. The other three are the origins of policing. These three are the origins of police, the professionalized standing group. Because beforehand, 
if there was an insurrection or there was a labor strike, they would have to ask militias. And especially with labor strikes, some of the people who are striking are part of the militias. So they're not going to stop the strike. And when they say strike, I'm not saying people were just walking around the street with a sign. I'm saying that they were blowing up factories, blowing up railroad, stripping railroad of the meadows so the trains would go off the track. These were elaborate multi-tactic things to shut down industry. They, they and, needed a, a paid police, a paid enforcement who could separate the human interests of what was formerly citizens' militias. Right. Gotcha. Right. And that professionalizes them, that begins to separate them from their other co-workers, which is why I think Nicole Siegel's work is important because she brings it back to being a form of labor made distinct by their authority that they're given. And then enslaved insurrections, we have no familiarity and knowledge of number of insurrections that were happening. We have an imagination as if people were either docile, complacent, or just didn't know what to do. No, there were so many insurrections that were happening on plantations throughout the place that it was difficult to manage them. This is why United States officials were suppressing the news and information of the Haitian Revolution, because just that alone would be inspiring because it went beyond an insurrection. It went to create an entire country. And imagine this is a time where news is traveling fast, almost comparable to now. They knew about this in Philly and D.C. very quickly and then moved to suppress that news getting to Florida, Alabama, Louisiana, and Texas. So what and, you're saying is there's this massive undercount of slave insurrections and just general disobedience because of that knowledge was to get out to other slaves that would just inspire them more. So we have developed this modern understanding that slaves were really docile and they just waited for white abolitionists to set them free. Yeah, or or, or the mythical black abolition. I mean, I just saw Harriet, the movie, and I won't get into a critique of the movie, but you know, <laughs> in the movie you just get a sense people had no idea what to do. They just were waiting on somebody to give them the idea. And this is not the case at all. The case very much so was these were so common and they were contagion, right? They were being picked up on. And if it wasn't a full-blown insurrection, there would be a few people doing something. So that's the second reason for the professional standing force and then the colonial occupational force. So as countries were taking over more and more territory, having volunteer militia that would leave would not be sufficient. You had to have them always ready. The classic cases when Edward Peel from UK is in Ireland suppressing the Irish and he's called from this duty to then create the British police force mm -hmm. in the cities based upon his knowledge of how he was suppressing the Irish in Ireland. So those three are the origins of the actual standing police force. But when we think about policing and democracy go back to what we're talking about in terms of racial violence. How did these actions happen? I mean, certain cases took the military coming in to stop something, but in certain cases, the military were apart. With Tulsa, the bombings were executed with precision because these were World War I vets, both black vets on the ground and white vets that were in the planes dropping the bombs. When we think about the hangings and lynchings of indigenous and Latinx folks, we're talking about police committing those acts. So there was never a refuge by way of a state. And when I say the state, I mean government, elected officials, private interests, 
and bureaucratic systems that are set up like departments of public safety, for example, all combined create the state. And sometimes people add media sources that are supportive of government as opposed to being a voice of the people are part of the state. It's interesting that there has never been a refuge because there has never been a separation between racial violence and the state entirely. So if we think about the relationship with racial violence and police, in these historic examples, they were quellers of violence. So they were sent out to snuff it down. There are cases in which, of course, police really were important. There are at least two noted sheriffs within Indiana that actually physically stopped a lynching. The second sort of relationship could be agitators and instigators themselves agitating or instigating it. And it's not always how you think. So in certain cases, police doing their duty of arresting the accused, even if they were falsely accused, and putting them in a jail agitated the crowd because they felt that that was too kind and benevolent. And while there are certain cases of police officers handing the person willingly over, there's other cases of police actually being threatened with violence because they're standing in the way of a crowd. So this is evidence that police weren't necessarily in on the action. The case of Will James lynching in Cairo, Illinois, the crowd breaks into the police station chisels through the cinder block, makes a hole big enough for them to carry Will James out. The same thing was done in Duluth, Minnesota. So it's not like they were handed the keys. So agitators and instigators. Third is compatriots. So they were part of the killing. So many people believe in the case of a Elaine massacre that when the troops were brought in, they actually worked hand in hand with locals to kill a lot of the people. And then the fourth, they're sometimes members. Police have rioted themselves. So the great police riot of 1857 in New York, the municipal police that was being defunded and abolished end up battling the metropolitan police who was their replacement. So these two police forces are fighting with all the civilians caught in the in-between. They themselves are the members of the riot. The idea of professionalization kicks in post-1857, like the example of the Great Police Riot, they were trying to move this ragtag unit of a standing force to a more trained unit. This is where you start seeing the class photo police shots of the 1800s emerge because they're becoming more professionalized. And in particular, W.B. Du Bois makes this argument about the wages of whiteness, where these immigrants, particularly Irish, were taken out of the factories and put into the police departments and then they were grandfathered into being white, and that took away their classification as rowdy, racial, other. And so that is one thing that challenges the idyllic role, but also creates the idyllic role. So we have this sense of them being professional. Number two is friendly. We don't realize that this idea of niceties and friendly was an official program. Chicago Police Department created the Officer Friendly Program. It's an officially named program, officer-friendly program in 1966 that involved police officers going to schools and doing presentations. Probably in the present day, the outgrowth is shot with a cop, but it's a manufactured thing and other departments pick up on it. Even though they started this in 1966 in response to riots that were happening and the image of the police and what they were doing to civilians, they still kill Fred Hampton three years later after this in his bed, in his underwear. Then service. Most people may not realize that to serve and protect was a model that was created by the LAPD, Los Angeles Police Department, in 1963. 
and then it was adopted by everybody else. These are manufactured narratives. Number four, community policing comes out of Lyndon Baines Johnson's Commission of Law Enforcement in 1965 in response to riots. And so the need to have more police walking the street and creating ties with communities. That comes strictly out of that. That's not a thing that has been there all this time. So those three things alone are all very recent. So this is why those historians and scholars that I mentioned earlier, Alex Vitale and Nicole Siegel and Khalil Muhammad's points are important because you can't shake that history because that history is longer. Mm-hmm. The history of how police have been this beating, suppressing force is a lot longer than friendly and service and professionalism and community policing, especially when those things were kind of manufactured as a way to separate police from other forms of labor, but also to respond to things that should be responded to with other types of programs. Right, right. Policies to fix the department itself. Exactly. The fifth final idyllic view that we have of policing is produced by popular culture, TV and movies. Whenever you do see a corrupt cop, it's the individual or it's a particular sergeant who has sway over a couple people, but it's not a system. It's very rarely that we see a system-wide accusation. We have to go all the way back to Serpico, the movie with Al Pacino playing the cop Serpico, who's a real officer in real life, who challenges police corruption. In modern days, right now, there's a Hulu special on crime and punishment around 12 police officers, Black and Latino, that challenged quota systems, and they were known as the New York 12. And then, of course, we have the classic case of Officer Schoolcraft versus the NYPD, where he was trying to challenge the system, even going to internal affairs of the quotas. He got into policing around serve and protect and working with communities and solving crime. And I mean, the commissioner comes to his house to threaten his life. And luckily, he has these things recorded and so on. So so I'm just saying that idyllic view are all completely manufactured things, not actual explicit duties. I hope our audience understands, like, this is not about police officers. Individual police officers in non-sort of official duty, in between a call and whatever else, they're performing their duty like a human being. Some are assholes, some are not. Some believe that serve and protect is this long history. Some believe that friendliness is a long history and not understand that it may be more recent. So this is not about police officer behavior. This is about programs and systems that have been developed to create a narrative that police have bought into, but also we as civilians have bought into. And, and then that gets into 1984 with broken windows policing, right? So if there was any positivity in those efforts, broken windows policing just says, forget it. We're going to go back to like beating people's heads and the most basic and minimal quote unquote action that's illegal. As a viewer of a lot of cop dramas, it's like the protagonist is always really incredulous. And they're like, no, this is just one individual case of spreading that narrative of this isn't a system. It's just one bad cop because the rest of us protagonists, we're the good cop. But I want to go even further. There's never a thing where we're looking at a city council making a decision in a movie. We're going to gentrify this neighborhood area. We need (laughs) cops to clean it up. That's what I mean by a system. Right. Mm-hmm. Because even within the concept of idea of multiple protagonists, it's still these individual actors that mm-hmm. somehow need to be removed. And no, I mean, there's cases of police commissioners who have run up against their city. Right. 
who are like, this is not what I signed up for. And they've been gotten rid of. In Pendleton, Indiana, 2017 or 16, the entire police department resigned because the city council was making them do investigations on other civilians that they didn't like. So the city council had a business interest and they don't like this counter business that ran like maybe a competing tavern or pizza shop. And they were trying to get the police to investigate them, follow them, tag them, over penalize them. And Pendleton, Indiana police said, enough. This is not what we're here for. Mm-hmm. And I, kn- I know the newspaper article said that they submitted their resignation. So what I'm trying to offer is it's complicated and it's more than just this officer thing. And when we think about a system, that's the basis for why these officers that are doing things because they're directed to. And so, you know, when people want to challenge an officer, you're missing the point. There's a mayor that's chilling in their bathrobe at the crib while the officer is thrown out there. You know, I always tell organizers in particular, whenever you come to a city meeting, that's going to negotiate policing and the police are there, you already know that it's a, a busted meeting because the police have no say in this. The police aren't the ones that gotcha. like, like, oh yeah, we want to tear up this community here. No, they're directed by a city manager, a city council, or a mayor. If any one of those three are not present, the city just ran for cover. And so you criticize police and policing, police officers are going to be like, what? But no, we're not talking about you, dude. Like we're talking about how and why particular areas have been targeted. We're looking at all these stop and frisk. You did not do all these stop and frisk. A mayor created stop and frisk and demanded you all to do this. Do the KKK and police have shared history? Yes and no. During Reconstruction, the middle president, Ulysses S. Grant, is noted for a number of things, one of which was enforcing Reconstruction. He was an abolitionist himself, and he created what's known as the Force Acts. There were at least three of them, and the Force Acts were exceptionally severe that they completely ended the first clan. The clan has three histories. They're not one clan that has a long history. So the first clan begins in Pulaski, Tennessee, 1865. The Force Acts completely suppressed them because it's now legal for clan members to be killed, and they were. One example out of the Force Acts then is in 1870, the Kirk-Holden War against the Klan. It was a partnership between Republican Governor William W. Holden and Colonel George Washington Kirk. They suspended habeas corpus, which means there is no right, and they just go about beginning to kill Klan members. So this is an example of police policing on a local level having a very different reaction or responsibility towards racial violence. Because of that, Holden is the first governor to be removed in office in U.S. history. The state legislature, who did not appreciate his actions, vote to remove him. Then when we jump to 1936 in Atlanta, Thomas Finch, 28 years old, is sleeping with his family, is falsely accused of rape and sexual assault. White men knock at the door. Two of them are officers and three other men take him. They do who knows what. He's pummeled severely and shot several times. They dump his body off at the hospital. And... The lead officer, Samuel Roper, is a member of the Klan, moves in rank. During this time, he eventually assumes the role of the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. So there are relationships with the Klan, but they're not always automatic. Mm -hmm. I think the biggest thing for people to sort of take away from is that there is a relationship between white nationalists 
and military. So Nicole Siegel, through violence work, she doesn't separate police from military. They're a part of the military. And discussions of police militarization is redundant. And also police brutality is a redundant point. Right, right? yeah. Because that's the function, according to her analysis. When you look at the history, especially when we go to the labor and slave insurrection, that's what they were doing, right? So the clan of the civil rights era, which is the third clan, third clan starts in Birmingham out of, okay. out of response to the civil rights movement overall. That's the one where you have maybe some sheriffs and so on that are part of the clan, but they're doing that for influence sake. They're doing it to be involved in cases and suppress them in some way. So that's the reason for the relationship with Klan and the police then. That doesn't quite match up to now. Are we on the fourth iteration of the KKK? Some believe it's the fourth, but it's so weak. So each clan arises and falls based upon leadership. Force Axe kills the first clan. The second clan comes up with the birth of a nation, the movie, but dissolves when the leadership of that clan, in particular in the state of Indiana, D.C. Stevenson, is arrested for taking a hostage of a young secretary, raping her and killing her. Third clan comes up with civil rights and it ends with the Michael Donald case. So the Southern Poverty Law Center represents the Donald family and they're successful and they bankrupt the United Clan of America with that case. And actually there's then a slew of hate crime cases that go against Klan and other particular organizations right after Michael Donald. And so there's this period in which white nationalism is not only not popular, but is going to pretty much land you in jail. The Klan is so weak now, there's not really a fourth Klan. One, the Klan is the least of white nationalist organizations to involve themselves in. If you're preparing for ethnic cleansing and race war, so remember my 11 points, you have to have training. In 2011, the Department of Justice filed concerns that this increasing presence of white nationalists in the military and the reason why they're going into the military, not necessarily policing because of the training that they receive. There's insufficient training in the police. And there's just so much training you can get from YouTube videos for survival or masking your survival training as zombie apocalypse training. There's just so much you can do. You need formalized training, not just going through basic training, but actually being deployed and so on gives you that insight. More serious groups than the Klan are groups like the base. And the base is the most troubling white nationalist organization, at least in the United States. They're not online, so they don't do Facebook pages. They're not idiots like that. They communicate through the dark web and they just go about killing people. And so some of the shootings at protesters from random individuals is believed to be the base. And then two police officers were killed out West by members of the base. They could never have gotten that type of training from the police, but the police are targets because a lot of these groups are also anti-government. Mm. And this is where there's a tricky history where the top law enforcement FBI, while J. Edgar Hoover had a vendetta against civil rights and black power and socialists and communist groups, he also was going after the Klan. Anything that was lawless, he was going after. And so he wanted to stomp the Klan out as much as he wanted to stop the Panther Party out. Mm. And he did. And so he was actively going through investigations. So that's how the case that's shown in the movie Mississippi Burning around the three civil rights workers, Swerner, Goodman, and Cheney, received all this attention because the FBI, on the behalf of J. Edgar Hoover, was stomping out any sort of lawlessness in the United States. So members who are drawn to groups like the KKK seek out more military training 
because there's something much more insidious bubbling underneath the surface. Right. And the Klan is not serious. Klan is for one level of white nationalists and the base is for totally another level of nationalists. The base are not even a part of the Bulu movement, which is what people have been saying. These people, of course, are not serious. They're on TV, they have their guns, they're at the state capitol saying, nobody's gonna put a mask on me or all these types of things, right? That's not the base. Not to say that those people aren't dangerous, but they're nowhere near the levels of seriousness, capability, and focus that groups like the base. And the base is not even globally the most serious one of the most serious is the Adam Waffen division. It's primarily in Europe, but they also influence the base. This is a global thing of joining the military to not only spread their influence and get new members in other places, but also to receive the type of training to really create either a condition for ethnic cleansing or to initiate a race war. There's two things about what you just said that have changed my thinking. One was that my understanding of the military was that it sort of bred white nationalists. And now it's that individuals are attracted to the military in some cases because of their white nationalism. And the second is that I had a very hard time contextualizing groups like the Aryan Nation in my understanding of the history of white supremacy. Because the way I understand white supremacy and republicanism and conservatism. Well, think of white nationalism as being all along the entire political continuum. The farther right you go, the individual is sacred and upheld, and the farther left you go, government is sacred and is more upheld, right? And so white supremacy is all along it. And so depending on which way you wish to go, or Brazil engaging in ethnic cleansing is more actually left-leaning white, white power, but in their way in which they contextualize it, right? Whereas the base in the United States is more on the right because they're not endorsed by federal government. In fact, they're against the government. Right. They want the government to overthrow, which is then goes back to the Turner Diaries and the fictional narrative. They have to retake the United States. And so that's why they retake DC away from all these liberals, all of these weak conservatives, all these Jews, and that means going against the government. So it's all along the continuum. It's just who's doing what. Is right. it the state doing the ethnic cleansing or is it a group of individuals doing the ethnic cleansing? I think one question I would like to finish out on, in your personal opinion, are police necessary to democracy? As an academic, you know, this is for education. And, mm -hmm. and so I've always been given the sense that our job is to provide education first, then to advocate. And both of these are based upon requests, right? You know, what are people looking for? Do we even fully have the understanding of police and policing? One of the things that I appreciate that a lot of people who are in the abolitionist space, why they're trying to call for reimagining society is that we are all the police. There may be an official police force, a police officer that does something, but who calls 911? Who tells the police department to remove this population from our park? Who builds a building that they don't want a certain population to congregate or be around? So, we are all policing each other, and that results in a disproportionate impact on those populations that are most likely labeled as dirty, criminal, dangerous in some particular way.
yes, policing needs to be gotten rid of, but you know, it's not just a simple thing of the police officer removal. Nicole Siegel makes this point in Violence Work. The point is not to just get rid of a professional police force and have a civilian police force because you still got a police force. You're still going to have disproportionate arrests. You still may have somebody to kill somebody. Again, George Floyd was not killed by a gun, a stun gun, a baton, just a knee. Anybody can kill anybody with a knee. So having a civilian police force doesn't somehow change the issue because we have a desire to police, to keep control. And there's a state that wishes to have us be policed, but we aspire to also be a part of and accepted by the state. We also then are assisting the state to policing each other. It's because of the framework that we all operate from that these horrible killings happen. It's not because of a specific singular employed body. It's called like the deputization of everyone. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think that's where some scholars have tried to label it. I mean, but mm-hmm. that's even trying to be too kind, right? <laughs> because some of us aren't even at the point of being deputized. Remember, George Zimmerman was not deputized. He was a part of Neighborhood Watch. And as far as I always thought of Neighborhood Watch, that blue little thing you put in your window saying we're watching. No one is officially patrolling their neighborhood for safety's sake. And if I remember correctly, he wanted to be police. I think he failed the test of something to that effect. So he had police aspirations. And if you remember on the 911, dispatcher says, don't do that. When he says, I'm following the guy, she says, don't do that. We'll send somebody out. And he ignores that. Trayvon Martin dies from policing, even though it's not a police officer. So he was never even deputized in any particular way. The neighborhood didn't bestow him this rank. The police department didn't bestow him this rank. He bestowed it on himself. Right. Yeah. Thanks so much again to Dr. Moat for his intellectual contribution to the Democracy Podcast. The music for the intro and outro is Moonrise by Chad Crouch, provided by freemusicarchive.org under a non-commercial license. Thanks so much for listening. This has been an episode of Democracy, a podcast by Themester.